0: Well, good morning, Brookside. It's great to see all of you. Hope you're having a fantastic weekend. If you're a guest with us, again, I just want to say, like, we're we're really glad you're here this morning. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Brad Zook. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and uh, it's fun for me to be up here. I'm not up here all that often, but we're in week five of this series going through the book of Acts, and uh, I have been loving it. And I, I know that from the people I've talked to, I've heard from a lot of you, you've been loving this too just going sort of slowly through a book of the Bible, Um, but it's awesome. So this morning we're going to be in the second second half of of Acts chapter 5 this morning, so you can turn there if you want in your Bible or on the app. But here's the question I want to start with this morning. Isn't it true that for most of us, if we're honest, we'd really like our lives to count for something greater? If we're honest, most of us would say, I really want my life to count for something more than just me, for something more than ourselves. We want to live for something more, something beyond just us. We want to live for a cause that's greater than ourselves. And if that is the the desire of our hearts or just something sort of deep down inside of us, man, that can be a driver for us, right? That can be so motivating. If that's you this morning, you go, yeah, Brad, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. I just, I wanna be a part of something more than just me. And that takes shape in a whole lot of different forms. I hear from a lot of men, especially, that say this is huge for them. That just as there's maybe something about us as men that just goes, yeah, I want my life to count. Now, women, I don't think you're not foreign to this either. You'd say, no, this is, that's, I definitely agree. You might, it might flesh itself out in different ways, or you'd put different words to it. If you have kids this morning, Maybe that, that's something more for you, that's something greater, is, is just leaving a legacy for your kids, it's helping your kids grow up and succeed, and just you want to see them be successful. Maybe you want to start a company someday, like a company that, that matters, that makes a difference in the world. Maybe you want to be a teacher, and maybe you are a teacher, you, but you desire to pass on the knowledge that we have to the next generation. Maybe you have a heart for the poor or for the needy in our city. Maybe your heart breaks, and so you've gotten involved in some organization, some cause locally, maybe uh, nationally, globally, whatever it may be, but you want to live for a cause. Now, we all know this cause or this greater purpose can certainly be spiritual, right? Right? Many times it is. Um, it has something to do with God. I mean, that's why many of us are here right now. It just sort of makes sense. If I want to live for something more, you go, oh, Brad, let, that's a no-brainer. My personal faith, my, how Jesus has just changed my life, my faith in Jesus Christ. Man, that is the primary way this flushes itself out. And so um, that's why I want to be a part of this faith community here called Brookside. Like th- Right now, in this context, this is how I live for something more. This hour of worship every Sunday, I'm all about it. But of course, this desire to live for something more doesn't have to be tied to God or Christianity. Maybe you're here today, maybe for the first time, maybe for the second or third time. Maybe you're intrigued by this concept of church. You're new to this, but this is too big of a jump for you. God, Christianity, you're just not so sure. Now, you fully believe that there must be something more to this life. That you, you absolutely believe that you want your life to count for something beyond you. But you're not exactly sure what that is. And to be honest, you're not exactly sure we, we can know what that is. Maybe that's just honestly where you're at this morning. You go, I'm just, I'm still on the fence about God. But either way, so many of us, by default, want to live for a cause. It's just ingrained in us, isn't it? And here's the question for you this morning, why is that? Like, where does that even come from? Isn't that odd? Is that put in us by God? Where does that come from? Now, in fact, in the past five to ten years or beyond with the rise of a, a global economy and with the help of social media, people are starting and have started social cause campaigns and nonprofits and events and conferences and all kinds of stuff left and right, right, that, have, that, that are about some greater cause than just them. I mean, the number of these are staggering, the, the amount of these that are started every day, every year, but this is also pretty cool. Have you heard of any of these? So, first of all, who can forget this one? The ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. Um, now, I think this became way more about the Ice Bucket Challenge than it did about ALS. But this started, right, as, as sort of promote, like, to raise money for ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. The first time I heard about this was when I was nominated. Uh, full disclosure, I, I never did that. I, so I heard about this. In fact, a brooksider confession time this morning from the preacher, a brooksider nominated me, and I had never heard of it. And I was like, I'm not doing that pour a bucket of cold ice water on me? Like, no. So sorry, Scott Jackson, wherever you are, you can hunt me down later. But then it sort of blew up, right? And all over Facebook, people are doing this. What about this? This isn't a nonprofit. Tom Shoes is a for-profit, but Blake Mycoskie started this a number of years back. The whole concept of buy a pair, give a pair. You bought a a pair of Toms before? Many of you have. That when you bought a pair of Toms, that they give a pair, um, every purchase, they give another pair to somebody in need in the world. That whole concept was huge. It changed all kinds of organizations. What about this, Race for the Cure? Here's some lesser known ones you maybe haven't, had or ha- haven't heard of. There's one just called Lead the Cause. This is a student ministry event, happens in four different locations every year, put on by Dare to Share. Uh, this next one, the A21 campaign. Anybody heard of that? This is an awesome campaign fights human trafficking. It's just started by uh, Christine Kane. She was a a, a leadership summit speaker a number of years back, connection to um, Hillsong Church, but doing awesome stuff. The If Gathering. Some of you ladies went to this just about a month ago in Papillion, the third year it's been in Papillion. This is sort of a national, that was a satellite site, national uh, women's conference or women's event. I think the main one was in Austin, Texas. And then finally, we've all heard of this, right? Even our own church... Right behind us, we're building the Brookside Care Center. So we're fully about the mission of God, but even we want to be about this social cause campaign. A couple years ago, we started the For the City initiative, and uh, we want to help clothe foster care kids when they're pulled out of of their homes to go into foster care. They don't have clothes, and so we're building that, and it's going up right behind us. And there's probably hundreds more that are popular right now that are being started uh, just this week. But what's with all of these things? Well, they rally us around a cause, right? They help us champion a cause. They connect people who are concerned about certain issues, who want to get involved in something more. And yet, there's a tension here. Because on the one hand, all of what I've just said is true. Living for a greater cause, living for something more, um, it matters, we want to do it, but it takes hard work. It takes effort. And not only that, if we really want to live for something more, In today's world, people basically say, you really need to be all in on that. If if you wanna champion a cause, whether it's your personal faith or some, you wanna be about uh, raising awareness for breast cancer or for human trafficking, we sorta need to be sold out, right? Our society would say, you can't do anything half-heartedly. If you're gonna be about it, man, be about it. So we sorta go, we need to be sold out for that thing. And once that happens though, some people might start to think we're a little bit crazy Maybe we've gone out into the water just a little bit too deep, and maybe when certain things are said, or when certain things are done, or perhaps when that happens again and again, and people f- feel pushed, perhaps, into this, this whatever thing you're passionate about, it might start to get a little bit awkward. And we don't like awkward in our society, right? Or, or even worse, we begin to make people angry. We get to be annoying, not on purpose. Or worse yet, we bring about some level of persecution, even which is where we're going to be going this morning. But see, the tension is that we want to live for a cause, we want to make a difference in the world, and we want to be sold out for that thing. But honestly, on the other hand, we also really love our comfort. Our comfort. We just do, don't we? In America, we love our comfort. We really like being secure and safe and comfortable. We do. I do. And so for some of us today, the American dream has really become find comfort. It's this picture right here. Forget a white picket fence. Nobody has white picket fences anymore. All I need is a king sized bed and a white comforter. I mean, when I pictured comfort, I just go, you know what I need? I'm, I need a nap. If I want to be comfortable, give me a white comforter and a big bed. And man, I don't care if it's in a studio apartment. I'm in paradise because this is awesome, right? We love our comfort. So we say, live for a cause, but of course, on the other hand, we also really love our luxuries. And so we opt for, well, I don't want to make a scene. We opt for, I don't want to make things awkward. We opt for, you know what, I'm just going to sit in the back and stay quiet, because if I speak up, they're going to get angry. We don't want to be lazy. No, 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 we just love our comfort. And so we've gotten used to comfortable I think for young people, especially today, and maybe this applies to all ages, but this is what I see, four general rules. As I just said, awkward. That this is like their great synonym, that avoid awkward at all costs. You want to clear a room of high school, college students, millennials? Get, do something that makes it awkward. Everyone hates awkward. Or maybe this, don't open up about controversial issues. Now everyone has opinions about controversial issues, but we know there's certain groups or don't you don't bring it up around your parents. Or you don't bring it up around this group or that group. Don't push your agenda on others. Or the fourth one, closely related. Well, you can be passionate. It's good to be passionate. Just don't let your passion infringe on my rights or beliefs. That's good for you. But what's good for you is good for you. And don't you dare tell me that I should believe the same thing or do the same thing or be about the same thing. So in the midst of this tension that we want to live for a cause, we want to rock the boat, and yet, oh, not too much. Don't want to rock the boat too much. People are going to think I'm a weirdo. People are going to think I've got off the deep end. People think I've gone crazy. And so the question I have for us today is what do we do as, a, as Christians in 21st century America? What do we do? How do we live in the midst of this Tension. Or, this question this morning is the central purpose of Christianity to be comfortable and to make others comfortable? Is that the central purpose? Here, where do we go from here? I want to show you again this picture the American Dream. Got a family, got a kid, got a white comforter. This is awesome. <laughs> Little bookshelves in the back, so you've got a house, but a um, couple kids and a spouse and Big white comforter, we are living the dream. Where do we go from here, and how are you going to spend your Sunday afternoon? Because you can't go taking a nap now that I've like gone this far, right? You feel guilty about that. Well, we're going to take a look this morning at the second half of Acts chapter five, as I've said. Um, so again, if you want to turn there, um, you can go ahead. But this passage is remarkably similar to the first half of Acts chapter four that we looked at two weeks ago that Jeff preached on, um, and yet there are plenty. Of differences here. Now, let me be very clear from the onset. Here's my main premise this morning, my bottom line, my big idea, and this sort of I know obliterates the tension I just talked about. But we need to champion the mission of God and the world, no matter the cost. That's where I'm landing today. We need to champion the mission of God and the world, no matter. The cost and two conditions on that, real quick, because sometimes you hear maybe mission of God and you sort of think get gung ho and and paint your face white and white and blue and be, you know William Wilberforce or w- no, William Wallace and sort of take the hill because I'm brave. Our motive always needs to be love in this. This goes without saying, I hope, but our motive always needs to be love, and our method always needs to be grace. Right? What is grace? Undeserved kindness. Undeserved favor. But our motive is always love, our mission, our method is always grace. But we need to champion the mission of God in the world. So let's dive into the text. I've divided this passage into thirds this morning. It's sort of a longer text. And so I'm going to um, start with the first third of verse 17 through verses 26. And I'm just going to walk slowly through this passage verse by verse. So right away, verse 17 reads like this. It says, Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees We're filled with jealousy. So the first thing we see is we have no idea what's going on, right? Sort of jumped into the middle of the story. And all we know is the high priest and his associates are jealous. So if you look back up at verse 12, here's the context to the story. Uh, The apostles are performing many signs and wonders among the people. Verse 14 says, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And then to top it off, verse 16 says, crowds gathered from the towns around Jerusalem and they were all bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits and all of them, all of them were being healed by the apostles. And so the, uh, the high priest and his associates, the members of the Sadducee, they were jealous, right? They were not jealous for God and his glory. You would think maybe by this time they thought maybe there is something to this Jesus movement. All the apostles are healing people. And yet, no, no, they're just jealous for their own, their own power, for their own influence. And so their motive... Is jealousy. I just love the fact that it wasn't at all the common people who hated the apostles. It was the religious leaders of the day that were against, that hated the apostles. And so verse 18 says this, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. What were they doing wrong? They were healing people. Like this woman had leprosy and you healed her, so you're under arrest. And they lock them up, and apparently they had the power to do that, and they did. So they're arrested, they're put in jail. Now, um, time out for a second. How much has persecution continued from this point in the first century? So we're going to talk about a little more later on in the story, how these apostles are persecuted. But when we look at the world around us and we understand the plight of Christians worldwide, consider in the church's history, let's just say for our purposes this morning, about 2,000 years of church history, in those 2,000 years, The bloodiest century for Christians, the century in which the most Christians were killed for their faith was the century between 1900 and 2000, when most of us were born, unless you're sort of younger this morning. That means that for the last 100 years of church history, they have been more bloody and more dangerous for Christians than at any other time in the church's history. And in fact, since the year 2000, we are on pace to break the last century's record, so if it continues on track, in this coming century, we're going to more than double the amount of Christians who are persecuted and who are killed for their faith. We tend to think about persecution only in small ways in America today. And there's, you know, it's, it's happening. But worldwide, Christian persecution is off the charts, right? And we know this. Many of us know this. There's stories every day. But so they begin to be persecuted. Verse 19 says this, so they're arrested, they're put in jail. Verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. This is awesome. You see this happening all the time in the New Testament. An angel breaks them out of jail. And so you would expect verse 20 to say, so go, uh, you've just been broken out of jail, flee the city, flee the country, and take your message underground. Because you just got arrested and you're wanted, okay? You just broke out of jail. So we would expect that of verse 20. Any of us, if we, you know, whether we did it or not, if are supposed to be in jail and you're not, we're fleeing town, right? We're getting out of Dodge. And yet, verse 20 says, go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. Might not have been too far away. Just go over here. No, no, stay in the city. I know you're arrested. They knew they'd be found out again. Somebody would find them. Um, I love this message. The angel says, Tell the people all about this new life. You might think like a typical street corner preacher. He'd say, you know, what we picture today is is a preacher going, you're all sinners and you're going to hell. And, you know, sort of this doom and gloom. You're all sinful. That's not what the angel says. He says, go to the temple courts, talk to people. And tell them your experience with Jesus. How your life has been changed. The message of this new life. I couldn't help but think of this this morning. Check out this picture That I know, so two weeks ago, we baptized upstairs, we baptized 19 elementary students on a Sunday morning. And I know if you were here last week, we showed sort of a highlight reel of all 19 of these students getting baptized. Um, But I love this because their shirts that our children's team gave to each one of them says New Life on it. So I'm studying this week and I go, we've got to highlight this again. So this is Claire Selinger and her dad Matt is baptizing her. Matt and Heather lead the fourth and fifth grade ministry upstairs every week. Um, but so I love this, 19 students, man, what a message, new life in Jesus. And so these students are proud of this. Uh, Mandy Hofer told me her daughter, it was the next morning, she was so proud. Her daughter wakes up on Monday morning to go to school, puts that blue shirt on, just goes, I'm, I'm proud of this. I've got new life in Christ. I was just baptized and just proudly wears that shirt to school. That's, that's, that's what we got to tell people, right? I've been changed. My life has been changed forever. I have new life. And so verse 21, at daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people they obeyed. Now, second half of verse 21, that sort of cuts scene. So if this is playing out like a movie, suddenly we're taken to, I don't know, the courthouse. And so it says this, change of scene. When the high priest and his associates arrived and they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, I love this, they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the door still, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to, like, oh, great, what's coming next? Like, what in the world is going on? The doors were still locked to the jail, the guards are still there as if nothing had happened, and they're at a loss. Verse 23, then someone came, like as if, right when they, I just pictured this, they're standing there perplexed, going, what happened to them? Verse 23, someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the ca- captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. So again, they don't use force, but they're arrested for the second time within 24 hours, Um, absolutely, Here's, here's my first point this morning, I'm going to have three of these, but the apostles, the apostles were unshaken, the apostles were unshaken, and likewise, we today can have unshakable faith, the apostles go, jail's not going to stop us, we are all in, so the angel says, stay in the city, go to the temple courts, we're going to do it, we don't care, we're simply not worried about being arrested, or beaten, or even killed, We cannot deny what we've seen and experienced through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we're just unshaken. And we're going to obey what this angel says to do. And we don't care what the consequences are. So number one, the apostles were unshaken. And we can have unshakable faith. Let's go on second, third of the text. We're looking at verses 27 through 32. This is sort of the heart of the, the text here. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. He says, we ordered you not to do this, and yet you did it anyway. Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. So civil disobedience here, right? When is it right or is it ever right to disobey the governing authorities. They were given orders by governing authorities, and is it ever right to disobey that? The answer here, blatantly from Peter, is when the command from the government blatantly goes against God's word. Yes, Peter says we must obey God rather than human beings. I'm sorry, I know you gave us strict orders, but we're not going to obey you rather than God. We just wouldn't do that. See, so many of us, we love our comfort too much to do that. We just love it, and so it's usually the opposite. We usually think, we're tempted to think, well, I have to obey my friends in the way the culture is rather than God. People are going to think I'm a fanatic. People are going to think I'm crazy. People are going to think, like, oh, you're such a fundamentalist or whatever. If you have teenagers at home, You know, like, I just picture teenagers telling their mom, like, well, everyone else was doing it. I'm sorry, I'm just going to follow the crowd. We do that so often today. And mom says, if everyone else jumped off a bridge, would you do it too? And they go, yeah, mom. I don't want to be sitting alone on the bridge. Everyone else did. We hate being alone. It's terrifying to be alone, right? So, again, there's a tension there. Hmm. So, he says that that there are times when it is right to disobey. And so, uh, oh, so Peter goes on, verse 30. He just starts to preach the good news of Jesus to them. Uh, I'm sorry, we're obeying God rather than you. Verse 30, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. Um, Again, he's saying, not only was was Jesus killed, he came back to life after three days. God, the God of our ancestors, raised him from the dead. But unlike Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, and others that were raised from the dead in the Bible, all those other people died again. They died a second time. Jesus, no, he's exalted to God's right hand as prince and savior. He's the Messiah. It was totally different. He might bring repentance and forgiveness of sins. Verse 32, we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So he just tells them the good news. What's point two? The apostles were unafraid. First, they were unshaken, but they were absolutely unafraid and in the same way, we can live out our faith with no fear. They did not hold back. They had no fear of punishment. They had bold courage. Imagine being on trial in a courtroom and um, taking the stand, take, you know, uh, taking the oath and taking the stand. And when you get the floor, you suddenly decide that you're going to preach the gospel. You're going you're to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the judge and to everyone else in there. That's what these guys were doing. And this happens numerous times in the book of Acts. They used the courtroom as like a place to, It's awesome. That's kind of what it was like. And so they're totally unafraid. And so again, I say this morning, champion the mission of God in the world. No matter what the cost is. Champion the mission of God. If we're going to be about something, we need to be about the mission of God. And then finally, the final third of the text, verse 33, when they heard this, this is the Sanhedrin, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, Who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin, and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. If you're reading the 365 reading, you're gonna come across Gamaliel again tomorrow. This guy was sort of Paul's mentor. Saul, Paul, before he was converted. But as Paul was being raised as a Pharisee, Gamaliel was his like mentor. He was trained under Gamaliel. Look for that tomorrow. Verse 35, then he addressed the Sanhedrin: Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thudius appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. Gamaliel says, if this is of God, this is unstoppable. It's unstoppable. And so, verse 40 his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, real quick, a word on flogging. Um, Many of you maybe are aware, you know, you've heard preaching on on when Christ was flogged, but I think today we would probably consider this torture. Um, It was bad, just my ESV study Bible notes said this, that the lashing consisted in striking the victim's bare skin with a three-corded whip, right? Sometimes they even said they, they tied in pieces of bone or metal into this whip, but the victim would receive two blows to the back and then one to the chest, and that was a round. It was a cycle of three, and they could do that up to 39 times they were beaten. All 12 apostles. And so they take it would absolutely be excruciating. But then they order them not to speak anymore. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin, get this, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They leave filled with joy. What does that mean? Where do you get that capacity? It probably means this, that when Jesus Christ suffered for them innocently on the cross, I imagine that there was a certain beauty there. On the outside, obviously, it was awful. It was bloody. It was bad. But the fact that Jesus was so good and so pure and so wonderful, and they had been been with him all this time, and he was such a good man, and he he was son of God, and he was absolutely sinless, and he was absolutely innocent, and yet he so courageously went to the cross that we should go, and I think the apostles went, it's not right that he suffered that much. And he didn't deserve it. And my life is so unbelievably easy that it would be an honor to suffer for that name. And so they do in verse 42, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped. They never stopped. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They're ordered not to talk about him. And they never stopped. They never stopped talking about him. So point number three this morning, the apostles were unstoppable. They were unshaken. They were unafraid. They were unstoppable. And likewise today, the gospel message remains unstoppable for us. And we today have the power to live this way. So to bring it back to our issue at the beginning, we want our lives to count for something more. We want our lives to count for something greater than just us. And yet, on the other hand, we love our comfort. And so what do we do with this? Well, a couple of things, just to be crystal clear. Yeah, I've already said this, basically. But we do need to let the cause of Christ trump our comfort. We do. There's a tension here. But comfort, and comfort's great. Comfort's a gift from God. But it can become an idol for us today. And we can't afford to let that happen. Even in America. We've been blessed so abundantly. But we must let the cause of Christ trump our comfort. So secondly, make your life count. And not just for any cause, make it count for the mission of God in some way, shape, or form. I don't care how big or how small, but you bring it up to people that we're not afraid, that we don't hold back to speak about our faith. But this is a reality as well this morning when we understand the storyline of the Bible. So sort of four points here. Number one, we need to live for this cause, yes. This is what we're supposed to do, live for the mission of God. But secondly, this, is, this needs to be said. There will be plenty of moments where we just won't do it. We won't. We can't. We'll fall short. We won't have the energy. We won't have the words. Those moments when I'm at the gym and I'm talking to somebody and I've gotten to know some of those guys pretty well, but I go, this just isn't the place. I could go there. We're in conversation. I could bring it up. Some of them know that I'm a pastor. Maybe they expect me to bring it up, and I just don't. And I don't know why. But it is awkward. And what are they going to think? And so we hold back. That's what sin does to us. And we still have sin in us, unfortunately. We're freed from the penalty of sin, but as of now we still have the power, the presence of sin. We're not freed from it. Now we don't use these moments as an excuse. No, no, no. But for the Christian, I mean, we can overcome this. We have the power to overcome this. But at times I'm just saying we won't. We'll fail. But there was one who could, right? Right? We know that Jesus came for our failures, not for our victories. He came not because, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. So we can't do it, but there was one who could, and he accomplished this perfectly on our behalf, no matter the cost. Because it cost him everything, and he didn't deserve it. It cost him his very life. That Jesus keeps advancing the mission of God, even when we fail to. That's why he came. He knew we would fail at times. Because Jesus is not just our example, and he's not just our role model, he's our savior. As Peter says here, he's prince and savior, he's lord and savior. Which means it's great if he's your role model, and it's great if he's your example, but if he's not your savior, then that means you're still your own lord and savior. We need a substitute, and that's who Jesus was. So the fourth thing is, when we see him doing that for us on the cross, taking our sin, taking our punishment, taking everything that our sins deserve on himself, We can do this. We're melted by that. We can live for the mission of God. We have a whole new capacity and a whole new power and the ability to do it. And so we really can be unshaken and unafraid and unstoppable. But so finally, what do we do with this? Well, three things this morning. First of all, let your heart be melted by the truth of the gospel. Those four things I just took us through. Just preach the gospel to yourself every day. That on our own efforts, we know we can't do it. This is what we must do, but we can't do it. But there was one who could. And he did it for us, and he did it perfectly. And so we let our hearts be melted by the truth of the gospel, by the good news of Jesus. And that's where we need to start. From there, I want to say this. Be bold and take a risk and risk big. That some of us, again, we're so afraid to do this or in our culture, we say we can't. Folks, without boldness, you won't survive persecution. And who knows what's going to happen even in America, five, 10 years, 20 years from now, 30 years from now? Without boldness, we won't survive persecution. And so, how do you take a risk? Maybe it's as simple as this explain the good news of Jesus to someone who needs to hear it, use words. Yes, your actions speak loudly, I get that, but maybe you, you sit someone down, you take them to coffee, you take them to lunch, and just share your story. It doesn't have to be weird, it doesn't have to be full of all this religious jargon. Just tell them what God has done in your life. There's somebody that wants to hear that. And at times we embrace the awkwardness because we need to. And then finally, I just want to mention this, remember and pray for persecuted Christians all over the world. And again, I know this can be hard to do or it seems so far, uh, it seems so foreign and so removed and maybe we don't know anybody, but look for these stories. And I partly say this because the scripture tells us to remember these people. I had a staff member um, share this, this passage with me knowing that I was going to preach on this this Sunday. But Hebrews 13.3 says this, continue to remember those in prison as if you, yourself, as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. In the context here, it's talking about persecution. It's talking about persecuted Christians. And so we need to remember them. That we don't want to forget that there are Christians all over the world who don't have the same religious liberties that we have and they're suffering for it. And so again, champion the mission of God in the world. This question, how can you take a risk for the cause of Christ this week? How can you take a risk for the cause of Christ this week. You know, Brookside's a pretty big church. For the city of Omaha, we are a pretty big church. But we're not that big. But you know, we're a part of something so much bigger. The Christian movement is big. The Christian movement is huge. And it's something that cannot fail and has not failed for 20 centuries Think about over 2,000 years where the church has lasted. Gamaliel was right. If this is of God, it is unstoppable, and it has been unstoppable. So this movement, not just our little part in it, but the history-long, everlasting, universe-filling Christian movement called the kingdom of God, it's an unstoppable movement. And I want to be a part of it. And I trust that we want to be a part of it together as a body of Christ. And so Jesus comes along and says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's what we get to be a part of. And so let's find joy in that this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I know with a topic like this, with this many people, God, this lands in so many different places right now this morning. God, some of us are ready to take a risk, perhaps. We know someone We've thought about it before, and we just need to have that conversation. We know it might be awkward, but we're ready to embrace it. God, others of us, uh, the people we work with, our family, our friends, there's just no way. We're, we're, We're crippled by fear. And that's a reality for us, too. And so, Jesus, we need your grace. We need the gospel. We need to be melted by it ourselves. God, if we've experienced new life, I pray that we'd share it with somebody and that be, we'd be okay with the consequences. We'd be okay with looking stupid or being labeled or being made fun of. God, give us the capacity to do that. So God, this morning we ask that you give us wisdom to know what to do with what we've just heard. And then God, give us the courage to do it. But God, we need you. We don't do this on our own. We do it with the power of the Holy Spirit with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, we're... Um, Privilege this morning to be taking communion together. And so I think there's no better way, as we think about it, as we let our hearts be melted by the gospel of what Jesus has done for us than to partake in communion together. And so, um, hosts, you can come on forward and begin to pass around the, um, the trays here. We uh, practice open communion here at Brookside. So, whether you're a, a regular attender or not, or whether you're a member or not, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, we'd invite you to, to join us in taking communion. Make sure you grab a um, you know, stack of cups, but then do hold on to the bread and the cup, and Rob is going to come, and he's going to lead us together in communion, so hold on to him.